This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Welcome to Beehive Banter. Grant Walker is on holiday motoring down the Murray River somewhere, so this week you're stuck with me, Nicholas Poynton. And just like Grant Walker, Labour leader Chris Hipkins has been having a week off of sorts after he fell ill on Sunday and tested positive for COVID-19. It sparked a war of words when the two parties tried to rearrange this week's press debate in Christchurch. After Nationals leader Christopher Luxon was unable to find another day that suited once Hipkins came out of isolation, the chicken word started to be thrown about. Well, Brent, is Luxon a chicken for not wanting to debate uh, Chris Hipkins on this? Look, I, I don't know about a chicken, and I mean the term, the use of the term chicken, and I think they put up on social media, you know, images of Christopher Luxon in a, a chicken suit was kind of a little bit, uh, you know, not the sort of mature debate you'd hope to have in an election campaign. But probably from Christopher Luxon's point of view, there was no urgent need for him to make himself available for that debate once it couldn't occur on the Tuesday, last Tuesday, when it was meant to go ahead. Um, you know, in a sense, if you you know you look at the polls, I guess they all show a fairly strong trend with, with National Ahead, mm. National Act Ahead, National Act New Zealand First. Um, he probably doesn't have to put that at risk. There's much more, I guess, need for Chris Hipkins to be involved mm. in these debates, particularly as he thought that he made quite a lot of ground on, on Christopher Luxon in that TV3 debate the previous week. And the Christchurch Police debate sort of has a history of being a bit of a raucous affair, and raucous. you can see someone like Chris Hipkins sort of maybe benefiting in that sort of environment, so nothing really in it for Luxon. Yeah, probably, and I mean, to be honest, though, the, 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 the press debate, in my experience, um, when I've gone to it, um, has been the best political debate during election campaigns. You know, with all due respect, television debates tend to be a bit, I don't know, form over substance, set in a fairly sterile television studio normally, um, kind of dictated to by the ad breaks, etc. Mm. And the audience basically is just there to look on TV, you know. Whereas, yeah, as you say, they have a kind of town hall um, feel about them, that the press debates, the crowd is a bit more raucous, there's a lot more exchange. And... And, and they, they allow the leaders to go at it more. There's a lot mm. more interaction. Um, you know, the, the, it's not a sort of television thing done for television. So those debates, they have always been, I think, much more interesting than the, uh, the televised debates. Look, chickens to one side, political violence, political violence or the threat of it has reared its ugly head during the campaign. We've heard these allegations from Tapati Māori that a candidate of theirs had their house ram raided. They've been the targets of violence that's been followed by Labour MP Angela Roberts saying that they were manhandled and slapped at a candidate's meeting. Now, Hipkins has already raised concerns about the rhetoric some parties were using, particularly when it came to Māori issues. In response, National then disclosed a number of its own candidates have been intimidated and threatened by gang members, pointing out the gangs who are campaigning in support of the Labour Party. What's going on here? Oh, yeah, I mean, look, in the end, it seems all of the parties are trying to almost one-up themselves in terms of who's getting... Now, and, and that's not... It is a serious issue in terms of... And particularly we've seen it on social media. We know mm. that over the last number of years, social media attacks on people, but particularly on women and particularly on Maori and other ethnic minorities has ratcheted up. And, and there should just be a clear denunciation of that. 
But equally too, you know, sometimes, you know, we have had um, periods in the past where, you know, perhaps people have crossed the line. I mean, I can remember in, in the 70s, you know, you go to a, any election campaign meeting involving Robert Muldoon and there was normally a good breakout of fisticuffs during the meeting. I mean, I as a teenager used to go along, quite used to quite enjoy it. But, I mean, but so it's... Think of 1980, not the election campaign, but the national MP Dale Jones got stabbed in the chest, punched his lung. Um, so political violence of that nature isn't necessarily new, but is it getting worse? It's a bit, you know, it's clearly through social media those attacks are getting more sustained at that level. And, I mean, the idea of people's houses being broken into, I mean, yeah, it, it does go beyond the power because candidates ought to be able to campaign free, free of fear or favour. And, um, you know, at the moment it does seem that um, a lot of political can candidates across parties are more worried about perhaps their, their personal safety than they might have been in the past. Uh, the, the defacing of billboards that you see, that's sort of common practice and it's, you know, particularly yeah, yeah. rampant I think when that's, it's that's, local. That's politics. And particularly <laughs> you can see some funny ones too. Which Absolutely. Can... But, but, you know... The acts of violence, it, it was interesting. To, you would have expected maybe some of the opposition parties would have come out and actually had something perhaps quite meaningful to say with regards to the the, you know, the young to party Māori candidate. Wouldn't yeah, it? well, I mean, it's been interesting because there seems to have been criticism of te party Māori for having raised it. They should mm. have just gone to the police and kept it quiet. I mean, so that, that is interesting. I, mean, I think the ACT Party have been critical of that. And then, of course... The response has been for the National Party to come out with this list of, um, you know, apparently threats towards their candidates by members of gangs, which, you know, which is, you know, just totally unacceptable. But also with that line of, oh, they are supporting the Labour Party, seemingly to imply almost that the Labour Party is behind. I mean, some of the rhetoric around it has got ridiculous. Actually, I think the party parties should have got together and they should have come out with a single voice on this about just how unacceptable that level of intimidation threat is to, to all parties and to all candidates. Yeah, well, sticking with this, negativity seems to be a bit of a theme over the past week, and both major parties appear to be indulging in a bit of fear-mongering about what their opponent will do in office. In Labour's case, it argues National can't afford what it says to do unless it cuts public spending more drastically than it plans. In National's case, its campaign chair Chris Bishop this week speculated if Labour does form the next government... Chris Hipkins will get rolled by MPs who want to see a wealth or capital gains tax introduced. How likely is any of this? Well, you know, it, it's not like... I mean, I, I do think it's fair enough that the political parties attack one another's policies. That's the whole point of the campaign. It's not only to put up your policies, but to actually argue your policies are better than the other side's, and here's why. So in that sense, I think um, putting other parties' policies under scrutiny, and, and that's probably when we get back to the issue about the debate. You know, a, a debate at least allows an opportunity for leaders to be put under scrutiny over their party's policies. But, I mean, I think, yeah, um, Chris Bishop and National have been running that line for two or three days, um, and, you know, I think it's it's part of the politics of the election campaign, uh, distraction um, and the like. And, I mean, not likely, for instance, if Labor did, you know, when you look at the polls and when you look at the position when actually Chris Hipkins became leader, if Labor does well enough along with likely allies to form a government, um, I think Chris Hipkins' um, position will be cemented mm. as, as Labor leader and as I mean, and he himself actually has mm. said personally mm. that he favours a capital gains tax, mm. but that there's no point doing it 
while National opposes it because it would take so long to cement in and actually start to have an effect that there's no point introducing it and then having a change of government where it's then, you know, cancelled, scrapped. Look, how much of this has been driven by the polls, which increasingly suggest that National will need not just act, but also New Zealand well, First as well? Well, I, I mean, I, certainly from the National Party, they, there seems to be an increasing level of um, urgency about saying to people, you've got to vote for us, you've got to vote for us. If you want stable government, it's got to be us oh, and John Key put out a video, and, was it yeah, yesterday or something? And 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 so, and amazingly, you know, like amazingly on Wednesday, um, after the uh, latest TVNZ poll, you know, um, Chris Bishop, as the National Party campaign chair, you know, emailed, you know, support, supporters and they're asking for more money because they needed the money to advertise before, you know, as people are going to the polls. I mean, they raised $5 million last year. They've already raised $2.5 million or more in large donations this year. I presume they've got more money than they can spend on advertising given the constraints around how much you can actually spend on advertising, but they're still asking for money. And and it's very much to say, keep Winston Peters out, just vote national and, I suppose, or act to have a national act government. And remarkable given that then, you know, Christopher Luxon had come out and said if he has to, he'd speak to Winston mm. Peters. Maybe if they're saying so clear about it, he just should have said, no, there's no room. Because... This, could this muddy the waters and make things awkward, the fact he's campaigning so well, hard against people voting for New Zealand first? It would just make things even you know, well, more awkward when he well, has to put well, up he, the phone, He's muddied right? the waters because he sent a signal to people who might have been considering voting for New Zealand first, look, I'll do a deal with them. So right. people who, they'll think, oh, well, I'll vote for New Zealand first. Possibly some of those people might have thought, oh, National won't do a deal with them, I'll, I'll vote National. So, mm. yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very odd campaign in that sense. And... National seems to be getting even more and more kind of almost hysterical about trying to convince voters that you need to have a National Act government. They clearly do not want New Zealand first there, even though Christopher Luxon has said if he has to, he'll pick up the phone to Winston Peters. Do you think that sort of messaging from the parties actually works saying, you know, try to solidify this particular, you know, vote for this particular coalition, vote for this particular combination of parties? Does that resonate with voters? I I don't know. I mean, I I think probably a lot of voters, it just goes over their head. Right. And I I think for a lot of voters in this campaign, there's been so much talked about, so much said, uh, so many accusations made about fiscal holes or the other, um, that I, I think people, you know, I'm just... You know, anecdotally, you know, in a pub in a provincial town at the weekend and, you know, talking to people there. Brendan's focus group. My focus group. They've got no idea what's going on. They don't understand it. Well, I feel like the word fiscal hole or hole has been the political buzzword of this election. But with just over a week to go and all the speculation will come to an end when voters finally have their say. That's Beehive Banter for this week. Next week, Grant Walker will be back from holiday to look at the final week of the campaign. Thanks for watching and listening. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Just joined the board of an incorporated society and don't know what to do? Well, there's a new book out to give direction to new directors, and I'm joined by its author, Pierre Woolridge. Well, firstly, why write a book telling people how they should... I mean, these are people who might be on school boards. Uh, What what sort of organisations are we talking about? Well, I guess they're sort of looking at people in incorporated societies, not-for-profits. When I started out, there was very little about boards and what to expect. And um, even now, there's very 
few, if any, books that are New Zealand specific about corporate governance, and in particular on not-for-profits or on corporate societies. So um, when I was asked a few questions about someone who was thinking about going on a body corporate, about what it all mean, I thought, well, probably now's the time to uh, write a book. What you, I mean, I, I, having read through it, I mean, you seem to... S- I mean, one of the things is you do note that occasionally there are p- people who join these organisations and they do it because it's, they think it's going to be a great experience for them and to their CV, but that's not why you should join, right? No, that should be the last reason you should join. You should join because you want to contribute to the success of the organisation you're joining, the board for it. So it's not about you. It's about what skills and knowledge can you bring to the board that will help the organisation um, do better, I suppose. But or, does it mean that you need to have a specific skill? I mean, for instance, you know, if you look at a, a board of trustees at a school, I mean, you know, any you know parent, I guess, with an interest in their children's education and the like, they they're fine to go on a board, or do they? Do you need specific financial skills or marketing skills or what? Well, it depends what the board's looking for. The board already exists, so it may be looking for just one or two skills, or maybe interested in knowledge. May be interested in the sector knowledge you got, but may not be interested in the sector knowledge. It may want a sort of a, a person who's got a, um, a board view of things who can take a helicopter view and whose values align with the organisation. The fact you've got knowledge in schools, or maybe you're um, a lot of boards are trying to diversify, have people who uh, represent their community better. Um, so it all depends what the board's looking for. So schools and knowledge is a bonus in my view, but it's not the, necessarily the main reason why an existing board would want you to join them. But I think that was a point you made, though, too, that you need to, essentially your values need to align with the values of the organisation. Oh, well, I had a couple of people um, who are on not-for-profit boards, one here, Derek Shaw, and one in Australia, um, and they're both, both very keen that I write about ethics and morals. So if your ethics slash morals don't align with the... Uh, with the organisation you think of being a, being a board member or committee member of, then you really need to think about, is it a good idea to, to put your name forward? If you don't feel you can go along with the decisions that an organisation makes, then think carefully about what's your motivation. Yeah, because I think we've seen some occasions people get onto boards because they have a particular agenda. Is, 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 is that a good thing? or No. No. I've seen that occur and it leads to problems because they're basically one-eyed. They think they're here to to push a particular wheelbarrow, but really they're there to um, further the organisation's interests, not their narrow sector interests. So for some people that's a problem and it causes grief on boards. And what's, I guess, also the distinction between governance, which was what boards, and management, and how often is this that line get crossed because people don't understand the difference? Yes, I think it's a major problem. Some people may have come from a management background and think they know everything, but really you've got to take a helicopter view. You've got to be an overview person. Um, there's always going to be a bit of tension, you might say, between the board and the CEO, um, and that's something that the, the board slash chairman and the CEO have to work out at some stage of the game. And that is helped by... Um, you have policies relating to the board's, sorry, to the CEO's performance and um, key objectives for the for the year ahead, sort of thing, and also their their rewards. So that 
it is fairly important you can um, put aside your prejudices and uh, focus on what's best for the um, the organisation. I mean, obviously with directors of, of businesses, companies, particularly publicly listed companies, you know, there's fairly clear expectations around their looking at assuring about the profitability of their business. What's different about directors of incorporated societies? I think you say profits almost like a dirty word, but surpluses are not. That's right. Um, you're a not-for-profit or a non-profit. So obviously, <coughs> pardon me, obviously um, profits is a dirty word, but you're allowed to make surplus, surpluses. Obviously, you're, um, you've got to earn more than you spend. It's very easy spending money, but earning it does take a bit of, uh, bit of hard work. So you do need to... Um, Focus a bit, even if you don't like finances, you do need to take an interest in the um, financial well-being of the organisation. And in terms of the obligations, responsibilities, I mean, obviously in the commercial world, we've seen some of the consequences of that with the Mainzio decision and the like. What are the consequences that directors of um, you know non, not-for-profit organisations need to think about? And the changes that have come to the legislation what do they put added obligations onto these pe- onto these directors? Yep, they sure do. The, the new changes come into effect in uh, this October the fifth. Um, one of the things which is probably prudent, you should be doing anyway, but a lot of um, committees and boards don't do, especially the small ones, is have a register of interests or conflict, so that when um, a decision's made that you may have some influence over or your uh, spouse or your relatives may have some influence over, then that's declared. Then the board can make a decision at the time. So that's whether, whether it's material or not. So that's mandatory. Um, if you're over a certain size, you now must have a um, an audit done, whereas in the past it's relied on the constitution. So there's quite a few... Changes the new act um, about three times the size of the existing existing act, which is a fairly light read at twenty nine pages. Uh, so it's, it's the new acts requiring corporated societies over the next two and a half years to become more more aligned with the corporate world, with the financial authority markets having a view, and um, as I say, auditing of accounts over a certain size. How many people do you think are aware of their obligations when they join these or these boards and committees? Well, I suspect um, very few. I have read research estimates is um, around about half a million people in New Zealand are on boards, not-for-profits and so on, charities. Um, and there's 20, over 24,000 um, registered and corporate societies. And I suspect a fair few of them won't have any clue. They sort of may probably know the act's changing because it's been going on for some years. It's not a... Uh, a relatively quick process. Um, yes, I think some people will be flanked. So hence the, the book of mine, fortuitously, the uh, Getting to Grits with a Not-for-Profit Governance has come out at the right time. Peter Woolrich, thank you for your time. Thank you. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.